What was intended to be a one message has turned into three as we're looking into the opening verses of Romans chapter 15. And I'd like to read for us the opening verses and do a quick review. Then we'll dive into verses 8 through 13 in particular this morning. Follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Romans chapter 15 verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Great passage, very encouraging. If I was going to summarize what all of these 13 verses are about, here's the thesis. We're supposed to welcome one another and look out for the best interest of one another, recognizing that God's call to salvation has gone out to all kinds of people. And so the unity that God calls us to is going to give us hope in a world that is hostile to Christ's followers. Did you catch all that? There's a lot that Paul packs into these 13 verses. We've got to welcome one another, looking out for one another's best interests, recognizing that God has called many different people together in Christ. And as we experience that unity, that's going to give us hope in a world that is hostile towards Christ's followers. That's the big idea here in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. And as we've gone through Romans chapter 15, we've been looking at the first seven verses. The first week we talked about how we're supposed to look out for one another, edify one another, following the example of Christ in Scripture. And then last week we focused on verses 5 through 7, which puts that end cap on the call to unity, which has been the big idea through Romans 14 and 15. And as we look then at verses 8 through 13, you're going to see that this call for unity in the early church was threatened by division between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a Jewish element of the church and there was a Gentile element of the church, and these were not always getting along very well. And so one of Paul's purposes we see throughout the letter because he comes back to this idea over and over again is that God's salvation is for Jew 
and for Gentile. And that if we have one gospel that is for both Jews and Gentiles, then we are supposed to have unity in the church of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's concern, that the Roman church have not a Jewish church and a Gentile church that were separate from one another, but they had Jew and Gentile together, really together, in one body in Christ. And this theme has been building and developing throughout the whole letter, and it's the final note that Paul lands on here in Romans 15 before he gets to his conclusion in the rest of the letter. So Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, is the last of the content of the letter, and then what you have after that is just his, his closure to what has been a, a long letter and a long doctrinal treatise. Now, as we come to the end of the content of Paul's letter, and that doesn't mean that chapters 15, the second half of chapter 15 and chapter 16 aren't important, they are, but as the body of the letter comes to a close, it's good for us to remind ourselves of what we've learned, what's been the outline of the book of Romans. And if you're a fast reader, you had a quick review there, but I, I took it away because I want you to be thinking, well, what, what is the book of Romans about? What was the outline that we looked at from the beginning of our study over two years ago now? Because as we've gone verse by verse through this doctrine content heavy book, it's taken us quite a long time to unpack all the truth that God has put in here. And even so, we haven't unpacked all the truth because the scripture is so rich and can be mined forever. Now, let's then review the outline of Romans. You know it starts with the introduction, that's easy, chapter 1, and then he gets into the content of the book after those first 17 verses, still in chapter 1. So, you know, if we were going to re-divide the book of Romans, we might end chapter 1 at verse 17 because the content of the book really starts in chapter 1, verse 18 and carries that first section through chapter 3, verse 20, where the emphasis is on the sinful works of mankind. That he starts off in chapter 1 talking about the sin of the Gentiles, their idolatry, their breaking of God's commandment that he's written on their heart. While they didn't have the Jewish law, it wasn't as if they were without revelation from God about what is right and what is wrong. And so the Greeks or the Romans, the Gentile world, was guilty of great sin before God, so much so that they were worthy of death. But having started there with Gentile sin, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul follows up with a long discussion demonstrating that the Jews are also sinners before God in need of God's salvation. And so from the very beginning of the book, he's putting Jew and Gentile on equal ground before God. The Jews are not better than the Greeks. The Greeks are not better than the Jews. But the main summary of chapter 3 verse 20 is, is that all have sinned. This includes the Jew and the Gentile. So the Jewish and Gentile element is there from the beginning. It's in the introduction, in his thesis in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and it's the major division in part 2 about the sinfulness of all mankind. And then he provides the solution to mankind's evil works, and that is the work of Christ. So after declaring the sinfulness of man, we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of man. This is the work of Christ, the saving, justifying work of Christ in his blood through faith. This salvation is accomplished through faith. And that is part of the Spirit's application of the work of Christ. 
So Christ, the Son of God, comes to bear the sins of the world in his body on the cross, and then the Spirit of God is sent into the world to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The sin of not believing in Christ, the righteousness of God in raising Christ from the dead, and the judgment that God has accomplished already at the cross so that sinners can be redeemed. So the Spirit comes into the world in a special, unique way. It's not like the Spirit wasn't here. But he comes to bless the world by convincing the world about this truth that's in Christ to apply the work of Christ to the hearts of men and women. And that's what Paul is unveiling there in Romans 5-8 through 8, is how the Spirit of God takes the work of Christ and transforms the lives of believers to have a life that is sanctified by the Holy Spirit the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in applying the work of Christ. So you see there's great logic. as kind of a systematic theology of the gospel that Paul is laying out in the book of Romans that he doesn't do anywhere else. I mean, the gospel is scattered throughout the rest of the New Testament documents, but only in Romans do you have this systematic presentation of Paul's gospel. It's the type of thing that Paul would have preached in person when he traveled from city to city, but he hadn't been to Rome yet. And so he didn't even know for certain whether he was going to get to Rome. And so in preparing his way and making sure that the Roman church had Paul's gospel, he lays it out in systematic fashion in this most important letter in the New Testament. And of course, with a Trinitarian outline here, you've got Christ's work, the Spirit's work, and the Father's will. So in chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals with Jew and Gentile. How is it that the Jews have not believed in their own Savior? How is it that the Gentiles are now being saved by this Jewish Savior? And Paul is dealing with this issue and this question in Romans 9 through 11, talking about election and predestination and and all of these concepts related to the Father's will, that it's all happening according to God's predetermined plan. And so Christ's work, the Spirit's work, and the Father's will makes a great Trinitarian outline for the very heart of the gospel in this book. And then paralleling in Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, you've got Romans 12 through 15 contrasting the evil works of mankind apart from Christ with the good works of the church in Christ. So I like this outline because it's got that parallel. Introduction, conclusion, we'll go ahead and throw that up there, paralleled with mankind's work and the church's work, unredeemed, redeemed, and the work of redemption here in the middle by Christ, the Spirit, and the Father. So keep that outline in mind. And as we've walked through and refreshed our mind on the outline of the book of Romans, we've also prepared ourselves for this morning's emphasis because what Paul does in Romans 15, 8 through 13, is he summarizes the salvation of Jews and the salvation of Gentiles. Their need for salvation and how God has accomplished that this universal salvation, Jew and Gentile together in Romans 15, 8 through 13. So let's take a closer look at those specific verses this morning. He starts off there in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, with an emphasis on the Jewish salvation. Jew and Gentile are both saved, and here we're going to focus first on Jewish salvation. Read the verse again, follow along as I read it out loud. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So, as Paul is calling for unity, 
as we have in verses 5 through 7. He wants us to live in such accord, in such harmony with one another, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is to be no division in the body of Christ. No division along ethnic lines. No division along cultural lines. That Christ brings Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian and slave and free, and all different types of economic classes, all different languages, all different cultures and backgrounds together in one family. And this unity is a shining light to the world. He says, I tell you, and he's introducing this in that way to show us the importance of what he's about to say. It's like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Here Paul is giving like his final charge to the church in Rome and he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Because already at this early part in the church, there were some Gentiles in the church who were thinking that Israel had been completely rejected. They had not believed in the Messiah. They had crucified him. They had driven out the apostles. They were persecuting Paul as he traveled from place to place. And so some Gentiles got the idea that God's done with the Jews and they're cast off. And Paul had to deal with that issue in depth in Romans 9 through 11 to show the Gentiles that God is not done with his people Israel, but that Jesus Christ, as he says in verse 8, has become a servant to the circumcised. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now that word servant is the Greek word from which we get our word deacon. Christ became a deacon to Israel. And the idea of a deacon, the idea of a servant, is someone who meets the needs of other people. Someone who is not there to be served, but someone who is there to meet other people's needs. And that's what Christ did for Israel. And if our Lord Jesus Christ has become a servant to Israel, then we should not despise Israel. We should not look down upon the Jewish people, but we should recognize their honored and exalted place in the plan of God. And Paul is driving this point home here to the Gentiles once again. Perhaps, you know, since they've read Romans 9 through 11, their memory has gotten short and they've forgotten all the things that Paul said about respecting the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he tells them, I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Why? Why is it so important that God's salvation is for Israel? And it's this, to show God's truthfulness. God has made promises to the people of Israel that must be fulfilled or else God is a liar. You can't trust a liar. And if you have a God who is able to go back on his promises to the people of Israel, then you have a God that you can't trust for your own salvation. Maybe he's promised that he's going to save you, but maybe he's going to change his mind. Maybe after a thousand years in heaven, he's going to get tired of you and cast you out. If you can't trust God, then you have no assurance. And God has made himself so clear with his oaths and his promises and his covenants to the people of Israel, that to say that God has changed his mind and rejected them is to attack the very character and nature of God himself and to provide us no foundation for our faith in him. So Paul, he really wants this to be clear, that Jesus Christ is a servant, a deacon, to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness. God does not lie. God is faithful to his promises. And he repeats the idea, he clarifies what he means by God's truthfulness when he says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. 
God will keep his promises. God never fails to keep his promises. And that's why Jesus Christ came. And that's why Jesus Christ died for Israel. He died for the Jewish people. God loves the Jewish people. They are the apple of his eye. The word of God to the people of Israel in the Old Testament still stands true today that any nation or any people who persecute the people of Israel are attacking God himself because when you touch Israel to harm them, it's like you're poking God in the eye and you don't want to poke God in the eye. That's a bad idea. God will not leave unpunished the person who persecutes the people of Israel. God has given promises to the patriarchs, and Christ is the confirmation of those promises. This word confirm is an important word. It has the idea of making sure, establishing, guaranteeing something. Paul used this same word in this way back in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 4. This idea of Jewish salvation, the confirmation of the promises to the Jews, it runs throughout this whole letter, as I've said. But this word, confirming the promises, take a look at how Paul stated this in chapter 4, verse 16. He said this, That is why it depends upon faith. Why is that? Because the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath, and so salvation depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. There's our word. To confirm it, to guarantee it. God is guaranteeing his promises to all his offspring. And who are we talking about? Who's his? It's Abraham. You go back to verse 13, the promise to Abraham. So all of Abraham's descendants, all of his offspring, are guaranteed to receive the promised blessing that God promised to Abraham, not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what confirms the promises. That's what guarantees the promises. And so the people of Israel today, the Jews that live around us, the Jews who are in Israel, the Jews all around the world, we have this message, good news Christ was sent for you. Jesus is your Messiah. He is the one who's going to confirm the promises of God to you. And the people of Israel, they need this good news, do they not? The people of Israel, the Jews, are harassed and persecuted in our day as they have been throughout their history. You look at the Jewish people and you might ask yourself, what good does it do a group of people to be God's chosen people? Because God's chosen people have had a lot of suffering. Perhaps more so than any other people that has been on the face of the earth. Let's do a quick review of this in our mind. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400 years of being attacked and oppressed by foreigners during the period of the judges. With brief periods of respite when God would raise up a judge to deliver them. They had a short time of victory and glory under David and Solomon. But then the nation was divided for hundreds of years before they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They were oppressed by the Greeks. They were oppressed by the Romans. In 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed for the second time with the temple. They wandered homeless in exile from their homeland for centuries, experiencing the Holocaust in the previous century. When they finally returned to their land and were recognized as a nation, they were there only to be opposed by the United Nations and constantly harassed by their neighbors. What blessing is it to be a Jew? 
It doesn't look very good if you look at the history. But God has made promises. And those promises will not fail. Those promises will come to pass. The people of the Hebrews will be the head of the nations and not the tail. Jerusalem will be the capital city of the entire world. And this is all going to happen through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the promised blessing. He is the one that confirms all the blessings that God gave to Abraham. The Jewish people can have them. The Jewish people will have them. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Christ will come and he will save Israel. That's what Paul is getting on about here in Romans. He wants the Jew to be recognized by the Gentiles for the place of privilege and honor that is theirs, not by virtue of their own merit, but by the promises of God to the patriarchs. God has bound himself with an oath to a people that oath cannot be broken. Israel will be blessed in the end. Now, when we talk about God choosing Israel, let me remind you of some of the things that we've talked about throughout our study. Come back to Romans chapter 1 with me. This emphasis on the blessedness of Israel and the fulfillment of their scriptures goes back to the, the very beginning of this letter. I want to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 2. You have in verse 2, talking about the gospel of God, Paul says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, the book of Romans contains more quotations from the Old Testament than all of Paul's other writings combined because that is Paul's purpose, to establish the truth that the Jewish people are the chosen people and that the salvation that we have is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. So we are not throwing out our Old Testament. We are not getting rid of the Old Testament. Paul wrote the gospel in his letter to the Romans with a heavy emphasis on the Holy Scriptures, that this is the fulfillment, even as Jesus Christ emphasized that his ministry was fulfilling the Scriptures, not canceling anything in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ does not cancel or nullify one thing that God said or promised in the Old Testament, but instead he fulfills all of God's purposes and promises. This was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's about 60 direct Old Testament quotations within this book, most of which fall in Romans 9 through 11, but you'll see we get quite a number also in this short passage we're looking at this morning in verses 8 through 13 of Romans 15. This was good foresight by the Holy Spirit because the church at Rome was going to be troubled by an arch-heretic very early on in its life in the following century Marcion, the heretic, was excommunicated from the church of Rome around 144 AD. And Marcion is the premier example of the heresy in the early church of being anti-Semitic and throwing out the Old Testament. And so the Romans were inoculated early on against the heresy of Marcion by this letter that the Holy Spirit wrote to them by the Apostle Paul, so that when he came preaching against the Old Testament, they could recognize his error immediately and excommunicate him from the church. Also, look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
he mentions the gospel, that he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome in verse 15. And that sets up the thesis statement for the book, the theme statement for the entire book in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I want to come back to the beginning and hit this again as we come to the conclusion of the substance of his letter. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is a Jewish priority in the gospel that we see reflected in the New Testament. When the gospel came, it came to Jerusalem. That's where the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost. And then it was preached in all the cities of Judea. And then it went to Samaria. And then it moved out to the Gentiles, even to the most remote parts of the known world at that time. And so the gospel was to the Jew first. Even when Paul would travel and start preaching in new cities that had never heard the gospel before, he would start by preaching in the synagogue. He'd take the gospel to the Jewish synagogue and proclaim, the scriptures are fulfilled in our Messiah, Jesus, believe and be saved. And if the Jewish people rejected, as they often did, then the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Now, that Jewish priority is still true today. It's not like when you go to a city to preach the gospel, you have to start in the synagogue. But the Jew still has a first place, so to speak, in God's program and God's plan. They're still center stage in God's purposes for history. And you can read through the book of Revelation and see how Israel is central to God's plan in the end times. Now, being first is a privilege, but being first is also a responsibility. Those of you who are oldest children, you know about this, right? Being first is a privilege, but being first is also a responsibility. And that's the way it was for the Jewish people. Though they are first in privilege, that means they've got more responsibility than anyone else, and they are first in judgment. Now, this carries over. We can apply this principle to the church today, even the Gentile church. Those who grow up in a Bible-teaching church, those who grow up in an evangelical church, they know the Bible better than those who don't. They have more privilege, they have more exposure to the truth of God, and that is a tremendous privilege. God doesn't have to give that privilege to you, but he does give that privilege. And he doesn't have to give that privilege equally to everyone. Not everybody gets to grow up in a, a family that teaches the Bible. Some people are taught lies and deceptions about God from the time that they're a baby. And God does not owe anyone the privilege of hearing the Bible and hearing the gospel. But those who receive that privilege, those little ones who are here today, whose parents are teaching them about Jesus Christ from the time that they can understand words, that is a tremendous privilege, but that is also a tremendous responsibility. And so God is going to judge more severely those who have had greater privileges. And if those who have thrown away the privilege of knowing and hearing God's word and have rejected the knowledge of Christ and walked in darkness, there is a severe judgment waiting. There's a, a severe judgment for trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ, as the New Testament says. When you know the truth and you reject the truth, that is a problem. And so, the Jewish people, they knew the truth, they had every reason to believe in Jesus Christ, and so they're first in judgment, even as they were first in privilege. And you, you see how that has worked throughout their history. All of the catastrophic events that I alluded to just a few minutes ago in Jewish history, it's because they're first in responsibility, as well as first in privilege. 
And that explains how God has dealt with the people of the Jews throughout the centuries. Why have they been so persecuted? Why have they been so downtrodden? It's not that God is not powerful. It's not that God is not faithful. It's that they have not made use of their privileges and in fact have brought judgment upon themselves being responsible before God for their reaction to the word of God. Now, with this emphasis on the Jew first and also to the Greek, and we want to look at some of those privileges that the Jewish people had. Come with me to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll look at the opening verses of this chapter as well. Now, be reminded that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The problem with the church today, you know, that wants to know, what's the problem with the church today? Yeah, you could, you could say it in many different ways. But, but really, it all is boils down to one thing, is lack of faith, right? We have the word of God, we don't believe it the way that we're supposed to. And that lack of faith is nowhere more evident than the fact that the church does not believe that the gospel is powerful for salvation. We think that we need to dress up the gospel. We think that we need to remove some things or de-emphasize some things. We need to edit the gospel in order to make it palatable, to make it acceptable, to make it believable to the world that is around us. Oh, don't talk about a six-day creation. That'll just turn people away from Christ. Don't talk about election. That just turns people away from Christ. Don't talk about men's and women's roles. That's just going to turn people away from Christ. So we edit down the Bible. We change the commands of God. We reemphasize and distort and twist until we got a product that we think we can sell to the world. Because we don't believe in the power of God. We believe in our ability to sell something. The gospel is the power of God. It's what's going to open minds. It's what's going to change hearts. Stop tampering with the Word of God and just declare the truth and watch the power of God work. That's what we need. The power of God is a dynamic power. It is a dynamo within itself. James White said, what we win them with is what we win them to. If we win them with man's wisdom, we win them to man's wisdom. But if we win them with the gospel, plain and simple, we win them to the gospel, plain and simple. So important. All right, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul asks the question. In Romans chapter 2, he's been detailing how the Jew is just as guilty before God as the Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the question is naturally, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul, are you saying that the Jews have no advantage because they're equally guilty before God? Paul, are you saying that there's no value in circumcision because the Jewish people are sinners just like the Gentiles? And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm saying. The Jew has tremendous advantages. He says, much in every way. And the world says, well, that's not fair. How can God give advantages to the Jewish people that he doesn't give to the Gentile people? Well, giving advantages is God's prerogative. God gives us life. God gives us a soul. God gives us reason. In many ways, God creates us equal. In other ways, God does not create us equal. And some people have advantages that other people don't have. The Jewish people had tremendous advantages that other nations didn't have. And God does not owe anything to anyone. He is a free giver. 
He can give to anyone whatever he wants and no one can say that's not fair because God is always fair. He just has a different idea of fairness than the socialist does. You know, envy is really at the root of what so many people are accusing God of unfairness. You know, when your child sees you give something to someone else and he says, that's not fair, I didn't get that. Is he really concerned about justice or is he concerned about envy? Envy. There's so much in the world that parades as justice, but it's really just envy. And so the Gentiles, envious of the Jews, say, that's not fair. God can't give them covenants and promises that he doesn't give to me. You're a sinner, and if God destroys you for your sin, that's fair. That's justice. If God doesn't destroy you and gives you promises of blessing and mercy, that's grace. Let's get our terms and definitions right on justice and fairness. Now, the Jew has many advantages over the Gentile, or historically they had. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God didn't give every nation living oracles. He didn't give every nation prophets. He gave it to one nation. But if some of them were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, the Jewish people were unfaithful. God is faithful and always will be faithful. And this is the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of the Jewish people. This is the story of Israel. They are unfaithful. God is faithful. And we can't become proud and say, well, if God had chosen my family... If God had chosen my nation, if God had chosen my people, we would have been faithful. No, you wouldn't. You would have been just like the Jews. Because human beings are human beings, sin is sin, and we all are sinners. So we can't condemn the Jews. We'd look at the Jews and say, that's what we would have done in their place. You can't say, oh, those dirty Jews, they crucified Jesus. You have to say, those dirty sinners, like me, we crucified Jesus because that's what sinners do. Sinners reject God. So it's not anti-Semitic to blame the Jews for killing Jesus. They did. What's anti-Semitic is if you say, I wouldn't have, or my people wouldn't have, because that is folly. That is unbiblical. So the Jews had advantages. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that good news came to them in the Old Testament, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith and those who listened. Getting the Abrahamic covenant, getting the Mosaic covenant, receiving the law, these were all tremendous privileges. But what the Jewish mistake was, was to think that one of the privileges God gave them was personal and national justification just by the fact that they were Jewish or just by the fact that they were circumcised. And God never gave them that benefit. God never said, because you are a Jew, you will not die in your sins. Because you are a Jew, you won't be punished for your sins. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God shows very clearly that judgment starts with the Jews. Greater privileges results in greater responsibility and greater judgment. And for the Jew to fool himself into thinking, we're God's people, so God's not going to judge us. He's not going to condemn me. He's not going to send me to hell. That was foolishness, and that was the error into which Judaism fell. But it was never what the Word of God said, and it was never what God had promised. And so if you're going to believe God and believe his promises, make sure that you know what God has promised. You don't want to believe a lie that God has not promised. 
personal justification, national justification, was never a promise that God gave to the Jewish people, but only as they walked in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had, the example of faith, would they be justified as Abraham was justified. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapters 4 and 5. Come with me to chapter 9 of Romans. Romans chapter 9. We get a great opportunity this morning to review what Paul has written throughout this great letter on Israel's privileges and Israel's place, but also Israel's responsibility before God. So in chapter 9, Paul kind of finishes what he started there in chapter 3, talking about the privileges of the Jewish people. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. This is national adoption. It's not personal. Not every individual was a son of God in Israel. Some of them were not saved and not adopted into God's family. But as a nation, they had adoption. They received the glory. That is the presence of God in his glorious manifestation in the pillar of fire and smoke. The covenants. Abrahamic, Mosaic. The covenant with David. And even the promise of the new covenant. It's their covenants. The giving of the law. The law is a blessing. The worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what a great list of benefits. Now notice, nothing in that list says that all individual Israelites received the blessing of justification. No. That was not one of the blessings. These things gave knowledge of God, but the good news that was preached to them needed to be united with faith for them to be able to experience personal adoption and personal salvation. So the summary of what we're talking about here is is that Christianity is not a new religion. It's not an anti-Jewish religion. Certainly not. May it never be. Let the Jew haters among Christian nations and Muslim nations take note of Romans 9 through 11 and learn to fear God by honoring the people that God has chosen for himself, the people of Israel. It's a message we can proclaim to our nation, our leaders. We can proclaim it to the Arab nations that if you hate the Jews, if you persecute the people of Israel, if you work against them, you are making yourself God's enemy and Christ will destroy you when he comes back. The people of Israel are inscribed on the palms of God's hands. He would sooner forget them than a nursing mother would forget her own child. And God will never, ever, ever forsake his people. All right, am I clear? As clear as God's word, I hope. Now, if the message of the apostles was really the valid continuation of the Jewish scriptures and not an innovation... How came it to be that the people of the Hebrews largely rejected it? That's what is answered in Romans 9 through 11, largely in chapter 9. And as I said at the beginning, let me just reiterate, our gospel, our good news among the nations has no foundation, it has no legitimacy unless it confirms the faithfulness of God in his promises to Israel. So let's come back to Romans chapter 15. So all of that was unpacking what Paul said in verse 8, that God in Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. 
One of his major points in the whole letter. I hope you see it again this morning. But we also want to talk about Gentile salvation. Jesus Christ not only became a servant to the circumcised, but he also became a servant to the Gentiles. I think that's the proper way of translating these two verses, chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. There's a parallelism that's going on here, that Christ has become a servant to the Jewish people for the purpose of affirming the promises of God. And then in the same way, Christ has become a deacon to the Gentiles. The Gentiles there in verse 9 are a direct object, just like the Jews were the direct object, of God making Jesus Christ a servant. And so Jesus Christ has not only come to serve the people of Israel, but he's also come to serve us, the nations, the Gentiles. And it's slightly different purpose. The purpose for Christ coming for the Jews was so that God would fulfill his promises, that God would be true. But God never gave oaths and promises to save all the nations the way that he gave oaths and promises to save the people of Israel. Instead, God has come in Christ to save us in order to show God's mercy. Now, it's not that God is not merciful in saving the Jewish people, but God has to save the Jewish people because of his promises, because of his oath. He's bound himself to that salvation. He never made that promise to us Gentiles. But God is merciful. His grace and mercy is so great that he has extended his salvation in Christ not only to those whom he had previously committed himself to in grace, but also to those who had no claim upon any of the covenants and the promises. God never promised the new covenant for you. He promised it for Israel. So how is it that we get to gather in the name of Christ and and partake of this? Well, it's because of the overflowing of God's mercy. Christ has become a servant to the Gentiles in order that we might glorify God for his mercy. It's on account of his mercy and on account of his truthfulness. Truthfulness to the Jews, mercy to the Gentiles. And then Paul gives us four quotations, one after another, that demonstrate that truth. That Jesus Christ became a servant to the Gentiles. And so in these verses... You don't have a covenant, you don't have a promise, you don't have an oath, but what you have are hints in the Old Testament that God was going to save the nations. Because the Jews, they also had this problem. The Gentiles were looking down on the Jews and saying, you guys are done, you rejected Christ, you're out. And the Jews, they were looking down on the Gentiles and saying, you know, God's made promises to us. He never promised about you. And and you have to become a Jew if you're going to become saved. And this was one of the major controversies in the early church, that there were Jewish Christians who went around to all the Gentile churches and said, unless you're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, which is basically converting to Judaism, you can't be saved. And so Paul is here now turning the tables on the Jewish Christians and saying, I want you to know that Christ has become a servant to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, just as God predicted in the Old Testament that he was going to do. So the salvation of Gentiles is not unheard of in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. And here, Paul selects four out of many verses that he could have quoted from to talk about how God hinted at this Gentile salvation even before it was fully revealed in Jesus Christ. The first one is from Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verse 49, which was in our scripture reading this morning. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praise to your name. A psalm of David. 
So David, as representative of Jesus Christ, is delivered from his enemies and exalted as king over God's people. And the blessing of David's kingship extends even to the nations that are around him. And so in like manner, Jesus Christ is delivered from his enemies, resurrected by God, and he's set up as king of kings and lord of lords, and the blessing of Christ's exaltation is felt among the nations. So a fulfillment of David in a typical sense. This is a typical prophecy where what is true of David is true in a greater sense of David's offspring, his seed, Jesus Christ. And then he backs it up with another quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And you'll notice as we go through each of these four quotes briefly that they all have this idea of praise and rejoicing. Notice the word praise there at the beginning. I will praise you among the Gentiles and then rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then in verse 11, praise the Lord, let all the peoples extol him. And then he ends about the word of hope with the quotation from Isaiah. So praise, rejoicing, which is tying in with what he said to Jesus Christ becoming a servant to the Gentiles in order that we might glorify God. So the Gentiles are glorifying God because of God's mercy upon people whom he had not previously committed a oath to save them. And we're rejoicing, we're praising him for his work in Christ. So that's what ties these quotations together. Psalm 18, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and then the third one is from a very short psalm. Psalm 117 is just two verses, and it starts off with, Praise the Lord, all you nations, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Now, he brings in another element here in the quotation from Isaiah. So he quotes from the law in Deuteronomy. He quotes from the writings with the Psalms, and he quotes from the prophets with Isaiah. So he picks from each part of the Old Testament in order to show us that the fullness of Scripture all points towards this truth of Gentile salvation. And Isaiah, the verse that he pulls out here, is from Isaiah 11, verse 10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And ending on that word of hope, that's a great place for us to land our sermon here today. That Jew and Gentile are together, and that the Gentiles have received a hope. The Jews already had a hope. They already had the promises given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. But as God reveals the truth about Jesus Christ through David, through the Psalms, and through the prophets in Isaiah, we find out that the Gentiles also have a future hope. They have a part in God's plan for salvation. And so that brings us to our wonderful benediction. Romans 15:13, one of my favorite benedictions in the Bible. May the God of hope... I like that title, the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. We've got hope, we've got joy, we've got peace. Some of the most beautiful words in the English language. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In him the Gentiles hope. He's the God of hope. And by the Holy Spirit, we can abound in hope. Hope is such a beautiful thing. It asks so little and gives so much. Hope is the forward-looking aspect of faith. That's what one preacher wrote. Hope is the forward-looking aspect of faith. So Paul brings in all the elements of his letter together here to give the final word of blessing upon the Roman church and upon all Christians. And so as we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for us. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We do this together, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture, we have one Savior, we have one hope, we have one calling, we are one family of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.